0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this webinar today. I'm Francis Seeley from global net 21 and this is one of the webinars we do in the series that we call Conversations Across Borders. And we do that with Marina Finetto, who's with us today, and she's from Traces Dreams, and you'll see her in a minute. And what we're going to look at today is well-being, but not just well-being in itself, but global well-being. I mean, we live in really turbulent times, and the need for well-being is greater than ever, but achieving it is probably greater than ever as well. So how we could go about doing that is something we're going to talk to Tony Gay about. But Tony's been you know, studying this and practicing this for a long time, and he's looked at how you can scale well-being up to a global level. So we're gonna to talk to him about that, and that's, that's really great. So thank you, Tony, for joining us. and. Um, Maybe I could start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, Thank you Francis and thank you very much for this very kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, A a bit about myself. Oh, this is all about self-disclosure. What am I prepared to say? Let's say this, I was born by the sea, the youngest in my family. My parents actually say that I could swim before I could walk. I'm not sure if I believe that, but it's a very nice thing to have said, I think. My father was a fisherman um, and he taught me a lot about being hopeful and optimistic and and resilient. Uh, When I got to school, I had a really bad time at school, primary school and high school, really bad. I hated it. Hated it until my primary school teacher realized that my father was a fisherman and she put me in charge of keeping the class goldfish happy. And that was a big turning point for me, and school then became a little bit more enjoyable. But I struggled because I didn't feel I was learning how to learn. And that showed itself when I got to 12 years of age, I still couldn't really read very well, and I still count on my fingers to this very day. Failed all my high school exams, uh, but my high school head teacher actually said quote, "tony you've got fire in your belly" now at 16 i didn't actually really know what that was didn't sound very pleasant i thought it was a kind of strange medical condition but it actually uh, it actually i understand was was a compliment i went to university somehow and halfway through university i was kicked out uh, i was uh, called an administrative error because i didn't have the right A-level grades. Um, So I was kicked out, I went to work, I studied at night school, climbed back into the university and then uh, met a really, really good teacher and that really good teacher made me feel that I mattered and the rest is history.
0: Okay, well, degree, let's, uh, let's uh, go through uh, that a bit a bit more as, as we go along. But let's go to Rina now, who's going to do the interviewing with us. So, Narina, over to you.
2: Uh, Tony, uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. And thank you so much for your short uh, uh, description about your life. And uh, uh, what I, I felt, it, is, uh, it sounds uh, uh, really that you were resilient in trying to do what you were trying to find. And you, you said also that your your father taught you a lot about being hopeful, optimistic, and resilient. How did he do it? And that, I, I think resilience is really a, a, a word that I, I would really, uh, I would love to uh, hear, hear more about it, because it is a word that we use a lot nowadays also in this situation. Also. Uh,
1: um. Well, being a fisherman my father took me out on his boat from the age of five and um, he always had this, uh, had this uh, conviction that he wanted to put fish, vegetables and potatoes uh, on a plate for us as a family every day. And so he went out in his boat in all weathers and I can remember as I grew up doing that that he seemed to know where the fish were, even if it, uh, you know, if the, the catch was poor, even if the boat was in a place that, uh, you know, wasn't, uh, he wasn't bringing the fish on board. He seemed to actually keep trying, persevering, trying alternative things, not getting downhearted.
0: Okay, well, let's take it up from there. Um, I mean, you were telling us about your background, your your, your school and so on, and, and your being brought up uh, in a fisherman's family, but you you eventually became a scholar, but you call yourself a scholar activist. What does that mean?
1: Well, it means that um, uh, I am, uh, you know, a kind of action man. Um, I understand that to do better, we need to know more. Um, But I'm not the kind of guy that just uh, tries to generate more and more knowledge and understanding about things. I have a commitment to do something with what I know and so in all my working life I've been very careful to have one foot in communities wherever they are near or far and one foot in the academy and I've been very lucky to work in a number of really innovative universities around the world Um, But also very fortunate to work in communities, mainly in East Africa and India and in the Arctic North in Norway and Sweden. And so I like to actually put knowledge to good use. And that's why I would like to describe myself as a scholar activist. And I always say to my students, you know, I haven't really got any good stories to tell you unless I'm working at grassroots level. And I always, I always tell people um, that at grassroots level, that their practices need to be research informed, just as I advocate research needs to be practice inspired. So that's why I call myself an activist and a scholar. Okay.
2: And, and um, uh, Tony, you, you started also this year the Global You Matter Human Rights and Wellbeing uh, Project. Um, why? Did you do it and what it is about?
1: Um, I did it because I had been working for some time in East Africa and I uh, had a moment of of reflection one day after some fairly serious work around human trafficking and drug trafficking and uh, around female health issues and and so on and, and, and child rights and I thought, I've got to do something about this, Uh, what will it be? And it came to me that one of the things that might strengthen people to be the best examples of themselves is actually to try and develop a social movement where everybody everywhere felt that they mattered. And because of my research work and, and background, I began to understand that Feeling You Matter is an absolutely core principle about, you know, trying to be well and and do good work. So the You Matter project was born. It's had its six month birthday. Um, It started with me ringing up 15 people and that's now grown to 100 people. Um, And it's it's a project that uh, is really about stories. It's gathering stories from people uh, to help us understand what it's like when you really feel you matter and the impact of that on you and other people's lives.
0: Well it's, it's quite interesting because you know when people talk about well-being they sometimes think it means happiness and some people say well you know that's a bit of a luxury when people are fighting for survival but well-being is more than happiness, isn't it? The way you've just described it, well-being is about survival.
1: Yeah, um, well-being is um, is much more about happiness, um, happiness and contentment, and I'm very happy to expand on that. But I think um, it's, it's important, I suggest, to really dig deep around this world well-being, because um, it's it's quite a contentious and contested word and that there are, because it's become popularized and COVID has actually made people focus on well-being, I think there is, this is a moment to really clarify what we mean when we use that word because it means different things to different people and what I say to people, well-being is not a beach you go to lie on, it's a sort of dynamic dance, if you like, where there's movement going on all the time. And just like appreciating dance, there's a large subjective element to well-being. So there there are many facets to it and we've learned a lot in the well-being, the global well-being project called, called You Matter, about that. Um, Three things, for example, that uh, we are appreciating. The first thing is that um, it's feeling you matter is the core to well-being, and feeling you matter is a need. It's a desire to feel significant in some way, not insignificant or invisible or excluded. Because when you feel like that, your well-being goes down, takes a nosedive. Secondly, it's a learning process. You know, feeling you matter is a learning process. You learn about yourself, you learn about others. And this is important to your sense and experience of well-being. And finally, we argue in this project, this You Matter project, that it's a fundamental human right. And by that I mean everyone everywhere should be able to feel they matter in the positive sense that mattering is about human benefit and well-being. So it's quite a broad and complex topic and word, but I think it's really important that... That your know, time is spent to clarify the different dimensions and different expressions of it,
2: and and uh, so, so uh, in global well-being uh, in pr- operational terms, uh, uh, what what uh, what could people do in uh, or what what uh, could um, enable people to achieve them?
1: Okay, I think um, there are three things that people could do in order to make a start to achieve that desired outcome you know i think there's a step before the step that you're just identifying if i could suggest and that is to really get their heads around three interconnecting dimensions of well-being the first one is we've got to understand what constitutes well-being that's really really important because different people define well-being in different ways what we've discovered in the You Matter project, is that there are three characteristics of well-being, of of mattering, that link to well-being. The first one is feeling significant or important to others. That's really, really important to try and work out, to understand, to appreciate. Second thing, being able to feel that you're noticed and you have people's attention. That's very important to well-being. And thirdly, um, it's about being able to form positive relationships with others. So that's, to, to that's Tony, the first thing, understanding Tony. the characteristics of wellbeing. That's the first of three things to get to understand. Uh,
2: Tony, uh, you, you mentioned this uh, exactly, but uh, uh, how, how can we do it? How can somebody learn to, uh, you know, how, how can I uh, get the feeling that I matter and how can I feel that
1: how can you do it? Okay. In, a, in, 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 in practical terms, I would always direct somebody to uh, a book published in 2011 by a guy called Professor Martin Seligman, um, distinguished professor of psychology from America, Penn, uh, Penn State University. He developed what he called his PERMA framework. And he said, It's P-E-R-M-A, and H was added a bit later, and he said, if you really want to work at this, you've got to work at the P, which is about the elevation of positive emotions. You've got to work at that. Secondly, the E was about engagement, meaningful engagement with others and work. Thirdly, talked about developing positive relationships. Fourthly, the M of PERMA, meaning developing a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. The A of PERMA is accomplishment, feeling a sense of achievement, that you're going somewhere, that you're doing something worthwhile. And the H is health. So he had the PERMA framework, and there are many examples which can be uh, accessed on the internet very easily about how people have used the PERMA framework practically to enhance well-being. But I would say this. The most serious uh, and most needy demographic at the moment are children and young people. These, if we look at all the research and we look at all the surveys that are taking place, the, those that are suffering most from a declining well-being right now are children and young people, especially up to the age of 24. And there is a wonderful tool called the EPOC tool, E-P-O-C-H, the EPOC tool, very practical, where people can look at different aspects of adolescent and, and, and youth well-being. EPOC, E for engagement, P, perseverance, O, optimism, developing optimism, C, connectedness, and going back to your point earlier Francis, happiness. So there are some wonderful tools and frameworks out there that are very practical people can use.
0: But but how do you get people to do those things when they're living in destitution? They're fighting for survival, they're fighting for their basic needs. I mean, you're a positive psychologist and one of the criticisms of positive psychology very often is it concentrates on the person too much and not on structural changes. Do you recognize that criticism?
1: Uh, I do recognize that criticism. I think it's... um, I think it's slightly misguided. I think it's a skewed perception of what the discipline is about and its contribution, but of course you'd expect me to say something like that. I I think the thing is, when... uh, when working with uh, the poorest of the poor, when working with people who are not hopeful, but they are... Uh, feeling hopeless, when they are caught in vicious uh, poverty traps and and debilitating downward spirals. um, There are kind of two polarised ways of tackling that question, Francis, I would suggest. One way is that you try and fix the problems that people say they have. You try and get rid of what you don't want, you try and fix and repair people uh, with the hope that things will will get better. And there are ways in which that can be done. And one of the ways that that can be done is through meaningful dialogue, uh, appreciative listening uh, and so on. The other way is actually to uh, have conversations which ask a different question. In other words, rather than saying, what's your problem, you say, you know, what is the best here right now? What is the best of what is? Even if it might be one small grain of sand, it gives us a chance to work from the positive. Because if we only focus on problems, the problem with problems is that they tend to get bigger. They expand in front of us and we, and we go off in one particular direction. But if we ask a different kind of question, a more positive question, um, perhaps around dreams and hopes and aspirations, then we can have a different kind of conversation, different kind of action. It's not easy. People have things called priorities. We're actually socialized into thinking the only way we can get out of poverty traps and destitution is by trying to get rid of the problem. Well, yeah, there's a place for problem solving. but there's also a place for having a different kind of conversation that's not always about problems but it's about something more positive. But
2: but if we speak about um, well-being in different countries, uh, if we generalize, we can say that there is a problem with well-being as people not feeling well. you you wrote that uh, you appreciate all generations and you have experience um, in different countries um, are there different reasons for not people feeling well in different countries and in different generations nowadays
1: well, um well i, I guess the, the 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 short answer to that is is yes that there, there is um some of those problems are historical some of those problems are social. Some of them are psychological. Some of them are institutional, um, and so it becomes quite a big and complex issue to try and get our heads around. What I what I like a lot is I like I like a, a survey that's that's done. It's done quite annually. It's it's called the it's, it's called the happiness, the global happiness survey. And um, it, it's really helpful in the sense that what it tries to do is it tries to look at those things which really um, get in the way of making progress. And one of those things that it's found in its 2020 survey is that it, it's this thing called social fabric where the answers might lie. It's the ability to feel a sense of belonging, a sense of togetherness, a sense of family, a sense that, um, of, of I matter to you and you matter to me. That seems to be emerging as a very important gateway into helping all people to actually live a better life.
0: I, I mean I, I understand that um, but one of the other things you said earlier is that Um, you know, what you try to get people to understand is that recognition is important to people. I think it was a 19th century philosopher Hegel who said, after we satisfy our, our basic needs, recognition is the next one that people need. Now, when you're dealing with people in impoverished situations who are really at the bottom of the ladder, how do you get them to get that recognition? How do you get people to give that recognition? Um...
1: My experience is that it's always difficult. Uh, We have to be patient. Um, We shouldn't promise too much. Um, We need to cope with things about trust. We need to talk about uh, issues around feeling safe. Uh, We need to uh, talk through issues about is it safe to say something and not something else? Um, Can we? Can we actually legitimately, morally and ethically, talk about building a more hopeful person, family, community, um, when that community has only known something completely different? It's only known um, disadvantage, it's only known internal displacement, it's only known uh, war and, 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 and unrest. It's very, very difficult. The answer for me lies not in people like me actually suggesting things to others, but to provide a context, an enabling context, in which people can actually honestly and without prejudice x. Ex- um disclose their true thoughts and feelings about what they feel would build a better history for them.
2: And uh, as, I, as I understood, uh, um, you argue also that we should focus on another, or a view progress in another way, so that progress should uh, focus on the, the elements that um, are more relevant for the well-being of people. Uh, how should or could, or Do we need to change our society or our directions in order to um, start um, taking this path? Or do we have already started taking this path, in your opinion, as a global uh, society?
1: Well, I think as a global society what we need to get, um, you know, much better at doing is, is listening more and talking less. Um, you know, giving less advice and actually listening to the lived experiences of people that we're engaging with. We need to drop all notions of being expert and expertise, and we need to actually think about lived experience, we need to think about what it's actually like to be there and to live in that particular cultural context, and to actually develop a real sincere appreciation uh, of that, and to facilitate good, positive conversations that matter to the people we're engaging with.
0: But what you're talking about there, aren't you, Um, I'm I'm not sure, but I I guess, is reflective practice. And um, when you talk about reflective practice, you've sort of reframed it, haven't you, into reflective learning, so that people actually do think about themselves, they do think about what the effect they have on others, And they try to um, do. They try to then change their own attitudes to life, their own world view, as a result of doing that.
1: Yeah, and and our ability to reflect on our lived experiences in a systematic, rigorous, and evidence-based way is, in my opinion, for what it's worth, a really, really important um, route way to trying to tackle some of these difficult issues of well-being. It's the way of reflecting back on those things which are significant to us, learning from that and putting that learning to good future use. That reflection and action, iterative cycle has proven time and time again to be a way not just to change things but to improve things. And I really do believe that um, you know there are plenty of practical well-being interventions, which I can give you some examples on if you wish. Practical well-being interventions that need that action reflection, so that it's small steps. Uh, it's a public process. It's something that's talked about and evidenced. It's, uh, reflective practice is a bit of a problem for me. I, as you know, Francis, I've I've spent all my life, you know, in that area of experiential learning, people actually think, you know, reflection and its practices, you know, they're kind of things you do, they go hunting for a problem. It's a solution looking for a problem. Well, nothing could be further from the the truth, actually. Um, You know, reflection and its practices, it is about, you know, reflecting on the good and the things that are just and right and that lift us and build a better future, not just reflecting on problems.
0: I mean, you often talk about, don't you, about building up for sustainable action and positive social change. Now, do you mean that at a personal level, or do you mean that at a society level, or do you mean it at both?
1: I think, you know, this this is the complexity of it. It has to be both. It has to be local and global. It has to be individual, it has to be family, it has to be community. And it has to work across those different dimensions if it's actually gonna have a sustainable and lasting impact. And that's why, you know, it is such a challenging issue. We can talk glibly about improving wellbeing, but really for it to be sustainable, it has to be something that cuts across communities across organizations and become something that's right at the center, front and central of everything we do, because COVID is teaching us some really serious lessons and if we don't get the well-being part of the jigsaw right, there will be some serious casualties um, down the track five years from now, ten years from now, and our children and young people are experiencing that and telling us that even now, not just in the global south, but here in our own backyard in, in Europe and the U.K. as well.
2: So, so in, the, in the great debate of whether humans create society or society creates humans, where do you stand?
1: Um, <laughs> I don't think Matter can create society, but I think um, the intention of the UMatter project, I call it a project, It's not a project, it's a conversation, and we hope the conversation will turn into a social movement. So in one sense, I think feeling that you matter, me to you and you to me, being the core of enhancing well-being works in lots of different cultural settings, and I think it does promise some good things, but, you know, there has to be some buy in from society obviously but what we're learning is that people want to tell us stories about when they felt they mattered and when they felt they didn't matter and when we know that we'll be able to develop some interventions to help that move forward positively.
0: I mean you clearly would love to see the idea of well-being scaled up to a global level and the big problem is how do you do it? Now you said you know you do this through conversations that might turn into a social movement But that's incredibly optimistic isn't it? Have you seen any evidence of that happening?
1: Um, I totally take your observation that I'm an optimist Uh, and, and I like that and I take it as a compliment and I think we do need a bit of optimism and hope in this in this equation. Have I seen it happening? Well there are many examples that I could quote for you where if you change the question you change the conversation, change the conversation, you change the action. We've got to get better at asking positive questions around feeling that you matter and how that links to to well-being. In six months, there is uh, a very modest project with a big dream, the You Matter project, big dream, optimistic. It started with one person, went to 16, now it's got 100 ambassadors in 31 different countries, I think this has captured people's imagination. You don't have to work too hard to understand that you matter is fun, a fundamental part of helping you to feel well and do yeah and bring the best of you to every day.
0: Okay. So I like being
1: optimistic. <laughs> And um, I haven't had too many people, in fact, I haven't had anybody at Francis actually say to me, Tony, this is a rubbish idea. You know, mattering doesn't really matter. You know, you can feel excluded and insignificant, left out and forgotten, stigmatized and so on and so forth. These don't affect well-being. Nobody's actually said that to me. So I think with patience um, and with optimism and a good deal of energy and positive intent, we could make a difference here in changing the conversation. I think that's the, the start of tackling this global uh, decline in, in well-being that we're experiencing right now.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I, this is, I, I think I would uh, um, like to ask uh, something that is not really related to the project but uh, it perhaps important to the conversation. You mentioned at the beginning I'm born by the sea and uh, I could swim before I could walk As so, um, it. it Remind me of when I was a, ch- a child and I was born in a small village with a lot of um, water and uh, forest. And, and in these times where the conversation about climate change and natural is um, relevant more than ever, how important is our connection to nature uh, for our
1: well-being. Sorry, our connection to? To nature. nature. To nature. Uh... Absolutely fundamental. I mean, I you know, we, we are guests here, um, you know, we come and go. It's it's part of our obligation and responsibility. I passionately believe that we have to look after our home. We have to look after our environment. So nothing in the well-being discourse, in the well-being uh, arena, for me, um, can really be significant unless it's sustainable. That's sustainable conversations, sustainable well-being in a sustainable planet.
0: But the, the problem is, I suppose, and, and taking Marina's last point up, is that in a period of climate change, we're moving towards a situation where we're not sustainable. And so that context becomes incredibly important. And that makes you the optimist amongst a horde of pessimists who are fearing for the future. Um, How how do you sort of respond to that? What advice can you give people who are going through that period of pessimism because of their future?
1: Um, You know, there's always a place at my table for a really good pessimist. Because one of the things pessimists do is they, they can ask you really tough questions. And I think as uh, a positive psychologist and an optimist, for example, I think our joint responsibility is actually to make a decision that if, you know, we give up on this, we might as well actually pack our bags now. We can't give up. We've got to find a better way. Solving some of the global climate change problems, environmental problems, very, very important. But... Uh, I think there's always space to not just think that improving the planet just like improving our well-being is always achieved by trying to get rid of the things that you don't want
2: so um what what would you um tell people uh, if say that say that uh, nowadays uh, we do need to concentrate on our personal level, concentrate on our country, on our community, and not think about a global perspective. Why do we need to think more about the others and the other perspective, and this kind of connection than about ourselves?
1: Okay, two, two brief answers to that. The first thing is that many people struggle with a global perspective. People are much more narrow focused. The lens is a narrow lens, not a wide angle lens. They're interested in themselves, their families, their local communities. They can't even begin to imagine, you know, things on a global scale. And that takes, you know, people with an ethical compass of moral courage to actually go to the big scale. So, you know, it's actually finding your niche where you want to exert your action. And the second thing is that how can we possibly tackle those issues that Francis just explored with us. If we forget that the absolute core of being able to do that well is to invest in our social environments. It's our social environments that should be a priority for well-being that will give us the strength and the imagination to actually tackle the, the bigger problems. Those social environments about family, belonging, you know, a sense of, of, of working together. These are at the core of actually trying to, you know, feel feel well and do good work. So yeah, global issues uh, can actually fry, you, fry your mind. And um, so secondly, I think everybody can make a good contribution to um, developing our social environments as a platform for the bigger issues.
0: Okay, well we've sort of have come to the end of our 13 minutes now. It's gone very quickly and we could have talked about a lot more. So finally, I mean if people wanted to find out about your work, what you do, about the whole idea of global well-being and how the work you do contributes to that, how would they contact you? Where would they go?
1: um first first port of call i would say go to my linkedin profile um and, and go from there secondly um the global you matter project has a, has an instagram page and it has other links so i would say just put the global uh, human rights and wellbeing you matter project into any search engine or look at uh, all the things we've been putting uh, online, particularly through LinkedIn, and there'll be lots of leads, lots of people that they can they can follow up, and lots of people working in different countries.
0: Okay. All right, or they well, can
1: write to me personally if they if they wish. I'm happy to do that.
0: Okay. Well, I'm sure some people will do that. Um, anyhow, thank you, you know Tony, for doing for doing this because it's been very interesting, and I. I think understanding what well-being is is important, understanding what resilience is, what having a sense of purpose is, what reflection is are all important for us as we're going to survive in the coming years. So, you know, whatever the turbulence we have to face, having all those tools to help us get through it is absolutely vital. So, I think what you've said has been incredibly valuable. So, thank you for doing it and thank you Narina again for you know, joining in on this and the conversations across borders, which, you know, looks at things from a global perspective. And Tony, thank you, because it's been a great interview. And uh, we'll finish this interview now.